And welcome to the Future of Gaming. You are listening to our weekly Future of Gaming podcast. If you listened to our last episodes, uh, we went deep into the potential risks of AI tech. But today we want to take a more forward-looking and a more positive view. Uh, so we're talking about how we can use AI to do cool stuff with games. And I think we have two of the you know, leading entrepreneurs in that space. We've got... Who, someone who's becoming a regular guest on this show, Tim Gotten, CEO and co-founder of Scripted. And then we have a special guest first time, John Radoff, who's the CEO and co-founder at Beamable. John's been doing a lot of awesome stuff that Tim and I have been talking about. And so um, we're super lucky to have him with us to share a bit more about that. And then we can just jam on how we can use these new tools to do interesting things with games. So Tim, um, perhaps you can just like give us yeah. one or two minutes yeah. about you know what you're doing, who you yeah. are, and then we can uh, can we can listen, like talk about John as well. Like first off, I'm just very excited to have John on the podcast. Um, he and I have talked previously um, after I saw what he was doing with his kind of amazing uh, stuff at the LA Tech Week Virtual Worlds Conference, where they won grand prize for their generative AI. Um, game related solution like absolutely amazing stuff that's very very much in line with what i'm doing with scripted where we're using autonomous ai to guide the narrative game building process and automate all that drudge work right so i was just very excited to like be part of this podcast get john on and kind of i, I i'd love for john to take over and t tell us about his background because john's like in uh, he's og this, this is a guy who was in virtual worlds when bulletin board systems were a thing so i i really want to just like let john take over for a second introduce himself and talk about his development of his company in beamable and how he got to where he was with the la tech week all right, uh, take over. I'm 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 drunk with power already. So <laughs> let's. Um, so I guess the context here. First of all, just a funny side comment. Like we're we're recording something called the Future of Games podcast. A, a, a few weeks ago, I posted this long 75, 80 things I've learned from game development over the years. One of those things was anytime someone declares the future of games, it usually isn't. So I'm going to approach this conversation with, with a lot of humility. Um, it's hard to make these predictions, but I, I will maybe share a little bit of my view of the, the overall context, which is I'm excited about the future maybe returning a little bit to the past, the past being smaller teams, more efficient teams, more productive teams, where a compact group of people with a lot of creative vision can realize their dreams and put out a great game. Like that's the games I grew up with back in like the nineties. And I think we might be going back to that. In fact, we already have seen some really awesome games in the last few years made by one person to yeah. like groups of four people. So I think we are on that trajectory and the future of games may simply be the past of games again. So what is driving that? I think there's a few forces, but it's all the things that just let teams be more efficient. You brought me on to talk about generative AI and I'm totally happy to talk about what we did at the Andreessen Tech Week hackathon where we won. That was part generative AI. It was also using the Beamable technology, which is to help people stand up a game server without needing to know anything about servers. Like game teams waste so much effort 
building cloud-based technologies and servers and things when you should just be able to get going. UGC, user-generated content, I think that's another really powerful force. 3D engines, you know, software-based ray tracing. Like there's all these really awesome things going on right now that are putting incredible power in the hands of creators who have this idea for a game. And now maybe with a team of, I don't know, to me, three people, three or four people is the ideal team size for a game. Like a really amazing artist, a really amazing features kind of game system designer, a really great hacker. And the three of those people get together with a common shared taste around a great game that they want to do. And then they build it. And sometimes you need more than three because you got to scale up certain aspects of production. But those tend to be extensions of the creative vision of a core team like that. So that's what I want to get back to. Oh, as someone with a three to five member core team, I really like that idea. <laughs> I like the idea of using AI to enable us to build things. I mean, like, look at Stardew Valley made by one person is one of my favorite games of all time, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want to be able to leverage all of this technology, which right now you called it. Like back in the day, we used to have five, eight-member teams building amazing games, and now we've got 200-member teams, $100 million budgets building AAA games that kind of have started all blending together. What can we do better than that, right? And I love this idea of learning from the past because you guys know that I'm big on that. You, Nico knows in previous podcasts, that's, that's what I like to talk about is there's all these lessons that can be turned into models of learning and models of development. Right. And so I'm excited about the future of AI of taking those old, old game development methods and styles and turning them into things that we can take action with, whether it's with a platform like Beamable or whether it's like the direct iterative game development process. That's what I'm all about, too. So this is this is a very exciting conversation. How do we get there? What, what, how, like for, for instance, with Beamable, you know, I've talked about nifties before. I've got a game where we have hundreds of creatures and we have a great balance system for them and we just want to push it out, right? With like three or five people. What does that look like using a platform like Beamable? How do I do that? Well, when you're dealing with all these technologies, whether it's web three or generative AI, or for that matter, any cloud-based component where you're trying to push server authoritative functionality for your game off to the cloud for whatever reason that is to provide persistent virtual worlds for anti-cheat, like whatever that stuff is, you have this massive orchestration problem. And there's a lot of game developers out there. Some people love doing that piece, but in my experience, not most of them. Most game developers are charged up by like the feature, the storytelling, the fun factor, the visual artistry, like the experiential layer of game development. And the more you can put that power in people's hands, the higher likelihood it is that you'll actually succeed with your game. Why? Number one, your velocity of development is going to go way up. You're able to have individual game developers create features instead of this Frankenstein of like, the server engineer, the client engineer, the 3D engine programmer, the DevOps person, and like they're all supposed to somehow get features put out fast. This is why like in many, many live games, it's so slow just to add something. So the whole point of Beamable is to get rid of that. So have no DevOps, cut down completely if you can, or at least mostly if you can, the server programming piece 
consolidate the skill set, make it so that your game developers who are working in engine using Unity or Unreal, all of the server stuff is just an extension of what they're already doing in the 3D engine. So all of the server programming, for example, in Unity is just done in C Sharp in the same project, using the same source control, using the same IDE. You don't have this hodgepodge of like, I don't know, if you've ever visited a game developer's desk, you're familiar with the three screens and there's the server screen and the client screen and like they're constant. And it's not just split screen. It's like split brain. You're like switching context continuously. So, and then multiply that across the team of multiple people trying to collaborate in that environment and all the brittle systems that they have to then develop just to get their stuff working together. That's what we got to get rid of. Kind of bring game development back to its basics, the core of the fun experience, rapid iteration of feature ideas, high velocity in feature ideas, because the one of the biggest determinants of success in game development is shots on goal. How many times can you try an idea out? How many features? How many iterations? How often can you actually incorporate evidence from your customers in, in the form of data and feedback into continuous iteration of the game? That's what's going to make you successful as a game developer. And I think that's why we've seen smaller teams be successful. Now, sometimes it takes them longer to get to market, which is also where we want to help. But like Stardew Valley, he spent five years, as I understand it, building the game. Yeah. Um, but it does show you what can happen with someone able to build all of the stuff on their own and deliver the vision. I think we've seen like with Valheim, that was a team of four people. So small teams can make really great games. Now, that's nothing against AAA games with the 200 person. 200 isn't even a lot of people anymore, like for AAA, like a thousand people, thousands of people is not unusual for some of the biggest games out there now. I love those games. So, you know, Last of Us, you know, one and two, two of my favorite games of all time. Like, I love those games. It's really, really expensive, especially uh, in terms of time, not just money, to build that kind of content. And that's where some of the generative AI stuff will help because you'll be able to bring together a scaffolding of content for world building, for storytelling, for art. All of these aspects can really be brought together very rapidly. But yeah. I would say the thing I'm most excited about in generative AI is not just the idea of the same games just faster and cheaper. I'm much more interested in new kinds of gameplay that you haven't been able to experience in any form, which is what we tried to deliver in the hackathon. So in the hackathon, the basic idea was, could you create a Dungeons and Dragons-like experience online in a persistent world using generative AI? So we created in the course of about a day and a half at the hackathon something that used the Anthropics API. So for people who aren't familiar with it, it's similar to ChatGPT, but it has a larger context window of 100,000 tokens. So you can have longer histories. Um, we used that at the time OpenAI hadn't yet released the 60,000 token model or we might have or we probably would have tried to use ChatGPT. We used Anthropic, we used Blockades. Um, 
Skybox generator, we use Scenario for 2D art. But the real key of this is it brought to life a Dungeons and Dragons-like experience. It wasn't a pre-scripted narrative. We gave it campaign information. We explained to it what we wanted the world to be like. And then we allowed people to explore that world. And it's a, it's, it, the idea is it's a multiplayer virtual world environment so that as rooms and environments get expressed, we then save some of that information up into the cloud and you can return and revisit to that. And then this really interesting idea that fits with that, which is what we call multiplayer prompting. So most people are familiar with single player prompting where you go and maybe you simulate interactive fiction and something like chat GPT. Well, with multiplayer prompting, there are multiple participants who are adding what they want to do and the story, the narrative is, is unfolding from there. So we were able to do a lot uh, in a day and a half. But that said, I'd love to find time for us or maybe just the community to spend weeks or months on it. Cause I think there's a, there's a pretty amazing idea at the core. Yeah. And you spoke, you spoke. Oh, go ahead. There's, um, so I just want to just briefly take a step back um, because I'm very unfamiliar as, as you'll start noticing during this conversation and my questions about what it takes to build a game and specifically things like backend development. Could you perhaps, John, briefly lay out what the options are for a small team wanting to build a game? Um, I, I know of a few companies that are building backend um, server technology. How does Beamable, Beamable compare to those? Is that more of a plugin and automation kind of tool that you're building or how, how should I think about it? Um, well, the, the short answer is we think of ourselves more as a framework or an orchestration layer for all of the capabilities that you want to use that are cloud-based or server-based components to your game. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that, but it might be helpful just to go through sort of the brief history of like how server technologies have evolved for online games. The, par the most immediate parallel really is 3D engines, though. Like, we're trying to do for servers in the cloud what Unity and Unreal have done for the world of 3D graphics. So let's go back in time to what 3D graphics looked like 10 or 15 years ago, which is 3D engines were still a little bit in their infancy. They, most people were still building their own 3D engines. They were sitting down in front of their you know, C++ environment with DirectX and they were doing matrix math and quaternions and shader graph programming all manually and, and kind of building their own little 3D engine. And then what did that leave them with? Well, they needed to make it scriptable. Usually it wasn't, so they just have to program inside the engine itself. It wasn't particularly composable. There was no visual environment. There was certainly no marketplace of components that you could plug into it. So that's really where server technology is for games right now, or at least has been up until recently. So you know, most people are still that we run into are still building servers from the ground up, and it's very interesting to look at what kind of tech choices they make. You, more often than not, they're using like web server technologies to power their games. So you'll talk to <laughs> you'll talk to people who are using like Node.js or Ruby on Rails or you know some kind you know they they obviously have web server development backgrounds so they're using what they already know and then the client the 3D engine becomes like this 
um, almost a web browser in disguise interacting with the web server. And it's okay. It's better than coding a server from the pure ground up like C++. Um, it does give you a bunch of capabilities, but it's not really designed for games. It doesn't work with the IDEs that 3D engines did. So what happens next? So people started to come along building technologies that gave you pluggable APIs to start shifting some of the web server kind of development outside of um, into, into modules that you could just utilize more readily. So companies like Playfab, um, which is now owned by Microsoft, or GameSparks, which went out, of, which was acquired by Amazon, and but is now out of business. Like those were a couple of the early, like I call them as like the API solutions. So people shipped APIs where you could plug them into your homegrown servers. And if you needed something like an in-app purchase API or an account login API, they could do that. It's kind of like at that direct X level still though, like you could pull in the APIs, but it doesn't give you composability. It doesn't give you customizability. It doesn't give you scriptability, all that stuff. So, you know, Beamable is at the forefront of this next generation where we're trying to learn a lot about what happened in 3D engines. And if you look at like what Unity did super well, onboarding process is very easy for a game developer. Day one, you can be building stuff. It's using familiar, easier programming environments that are, you know, reasonably memory safe and sandboxable like C Sharp to do your coding. It's got a very composable environment in that they've defined the framework such that the data interfaces connect to each other across different components so everything just works with each other. And then that, of course, enables this tremendous Unity Asset Store marketplace of downloadable plugin components that, that enhance what you're able to build. Unreal is doing very similar things, especially now that they're setting forth with languages like Verse and they're relaunching the Fab marketplace. So like 3D engines at this point are very, very mature in that respect. We are trying with Beamable to skip past all of like these API approaches or canned 3D server technologies that you just have to build on top of that aren't very adaptable and instead give people a very flexible framework to work within that's composable, extensible, has a marketplace of plug-in components. We, we announced our marketplace a few months back, GDC. And if I can so, talk for a second about the versatility of the server architecture, right? Um, because this is a great uh, interest to me as a MMORPG developer, right? So in the beginning, the early MUDs, the multi-user dungeons and stuff, were really uh, bound by the number of ports that a given system could support, right? And then once larger developers said, hey, we want to connect more people than what a single machine can handle, we invented things like account systems and login systems that routed you to a specific server. Like uh, we called them shards originally, right? And then those servers generally came in two types. Um, one would have sub areas called zones and you would essentially teleport or walk through portals to get from one to the other. And the others were more complex where they would be like seamless boundaries. You could walk across it. And if you were near a border, one server was responsible for mirroring the content to the other, you know, with the communication path. That one has been mostly abandoned in today's games, but I know we're prevalent in things like Ultima Online. 
And then finally, you uh, you kind of end up with things like um, World of Warcraft, where they invented phasing, where multiple players could experience the same world, but see different things because of their experiences and their levels, right? So as far as Beamable server versatility goes, where are where are you guys in that kind of like slice of technology? So we there there's a few layers mm-hmm. of the technology, all right? So uh, it starts with the day to day what you might call live ops for a game. So live ops includes things like how do you administer the player accounts? How do you schedule events and content and manage deployment processes and look at analytics and reach conclusions about what you want to do in the game and do notifications and campaign messaging and all this stuff that you actually do to to run a game on a day-to-day basis. So that's sort of the top layer that the day-to-day like product managers and some game designers would access. There's a development tool layer, which is where which actually plugs into the 3D engine you use. So for the game developers who are building the game, they work inside Unity or Unreal, and everything that you build is idiomatic to the 3D engine, meaning that if you are a Unity developer, for example, you're programming any server code is just in C sharp. It's in the gotcha. same project. It's deployed alongside everything. So all of those live ops capabilities that I was just describing, those are automatically instantiated simply by working in our development environment that wraps around Unity right. and Unreal. It's very readily, you know, deployable. And then at the and then there's sort of a base infrastructure layer, which is data persistence and cloud code and blockchain integration, microservices, all of that kind of stuff is kind of the base layer on top of which all of that's built. That's a serverless architecture so that your developers don't really need to know anything about all of those complex things you were just talking about, like Uh figuring out how to do routing of users to a particular microservice. You don't have to do that because an object broker and all that routing is just built in to Beamable like that you just get when you launch and install the product. Now, in terms of like real-time multiplayer, there's lots and lots of different ways that can be done. And so much of it is specific to the kind of game. Is it like a first-person shooter where physics is going to be important versus... You know, things like an RTS or a MOBA game, which don't look like they're turn-based, but they're actually turn-based games underneath, just a kind of a rapid number of turns, Mm -hmm. um, to card-based games, which are obviously turn-based. And then you have everything from like small number of players to huge number of players. So real-time multiplayer we see is something where there's going to be a lot of different solutions for that. So we partner with with people like Photon, for example, out there who who provide like multiplayer functionality and and really you could use any multiplayer functionality that you want alongside of us. We provide the microservices, the coding architecture for all of the game rules, the server logic, like when you make the fireball spell and you say it does this much damage based on this criteria about that player, we'll give you the ability to very, very easily write that microservice so that it's server authoritative, cheat proof, cloud-based, resolves everything about what that player is doing, you know, not in the client, but in your server without having a resort to like complicated hodgepodge of, yeah. of programming architectures like we were talking about earlier. So, you know, a big part of our approach 
is this idea of extensibility, composability, and a marketplace of components that plug into Beamable. So our thinking in this market isn't that we're going to build every single component that could ever exist for an online game. Right. Because that would be like Unity or Unreal saying, we'll, we'll give you everything you need, just assemble the pieces, yeah. right? And if that was true, then you wouldn't have yeah. these really large asset stores at, at Unity and Unreal giving you lots of components that come from third-party developers. So we want to, number one, unlock value even within game developers where they've created some code that they might want to share with other people. We want to support an ecosystem of people who want to create tooling and components that people can add to it. And we want to really embrace people who've already figured out specific solutions to problems like a particular real-time multiplayer networking protocol, for example, and then pull that into a composable architecture so that it has a deployment process, it integrates with your account management, customer support, and item schema, and in all these different systems that you need for a game. Man, hot diggity. <laughs> so um, uh, one of the mistakes I or the things I do is that I, I tend to put on my investor hat too often. And so, you know, when listening to you um, describe how 3D world building has evolved with Unreal and um, and Unity and how you're now trying to essentially mirror that for server and the backend stuff, it just makes a lot of sense. And that's when my spidey senses start tingling with the question, why now? Um, and and like why hasn't or isn't this being done by more teams? Because it does make sense. Um, well, so first of all, it's a it's a very hard problem to solve. Just as it took a three D a long time to create that kind of composable architecture, this isn't easy, and doing it the right way isn't easy. So things like Docker and microservices and container architectures for for server development have you know they matured a few years ago and that was sort of a prerequisite to build the right kind of architecture for this if you had attempted to do this say 10 years ago at the same time 3d engines were attacking this problem you know you would have been building like an mvc architecture on top of the app servers of the time maybe you'd take ruby on rails and you create the game server for ruby on rails or you'd create the game server for node.js um the problem with that is it's not super scalable in the way that games need to be and that's where things like container architectures and orchestration layers and microservices really come to the rescue there. And, and that stuff has gotten more mature in the last few years, but the average game developer hasn't caught up to that yet. Game developers in general tend to be more focused on the experiential layer of the game and they are not up to, as up to speed. And my, although of course there's exceptions and someone listening to this will be like, yeah, but I know all that stuff. Of course, game developers you know, I'm, I'm a game developer and we're all hackers and we, and we can be good at anything we want to focus on. But in general, you know, if you look at like the world of large scale web and mobile applications where container architectures, for example, and 
have really been embraced by companies like Spotify and Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, over the last few years, game developers haven't caught up to that yet. So that's just part of it. The other part is just online games are now really what games are. So it's not to say that there's a death of single player games. They still exist. Like every, like games is an additive market. Every time there's something new, the old stuff doesn't get away. It may not grow as much, but there's going to be more and more and more new stuff. If you look at the, in general, the way the market has grown over the last few years, especially over the course of like the pandemic, it's online games, it's games with economies, it's games with with complicated social systems, online gameplay. And that is now in reach of these smaller teams. So the, the very first trend that I commented on was, well, can we put these kind of capabilities that have previously required massive teams in the hands of smaller developers? If you look at something like, you know, Call of Duty, for example, you look at the credits there, like Demonware is basically the live ops piece of Call of Duty. And I think I counted like 200 plus headcount on that. Like, so you don't need 200 plus headcount to build an online game anymore, but the market demands these games and a small team of a handful of people should be able to do that. So there's a lot of forces. It's consumer demand. It's the expectation of online content, continuous updates, social systems to support your players. Plus I think the technological maturity um, catching up in games to what has previously been present within large-scale web and mobile development. So I just want to speak to this from an illustrative example side, because I think this is like a key part of the conversation, right? So when I joined Electronic Arts, uh, I was there just about the time when World of Warcraft was released, while simultaneously EA was working on one of the many proposed sequels to Ultima Online, right? So they had like a EverQuest-style competitor that was in 3D coming out, I think this one was called Ultima Online Odyssey or Ultima Odyssey. Yeah, it was UOX. Uh, UXO? Anyway, it, they put their hearts and souls into it, and it was they had 3D models. They had great monsters. They ha- I've seen the demo reels. It, it looked like it was going to be a phenomenal game. However, they could not out-content what WoW was delivering, and suddenly the executive teams at EA were sending out emails to everyone saying, hey, let's make a – Let's make a group and let's start playing together. Send me your spec sheet. So when your executive team stops golfing and plays World of Warcraft while you're working on a 3D MMORPG sequel, you know that you're not able to outrun, outpace that content development stream with a small team, right? So after EA, I went to a company that had started building their own 3D engine game, right? It was a hero engine. They were making um, Hero's Journey. They realized that they could just never, with the money they had, generate enough content to finish the game. They had a like a 20, 25% completed game. Brilliant people too. It was really cool looking. They said, hey, we think our server tech's valuable. Let's go ahead and turn it into an engine. Hey, the cloud is here. Let's turn that engine that we haven't been able to like really move and get adopted into a cloud situation where people can make cloud games. It was okay. But that's the natural tendency of these teams when they can't generate enough content is to take what they spent all the money on which was reinventing these server wheels again and again and again because there was no solution at the time like Beamable. There was no there was no thing that reduced risk, and that's what I see Beamable doing, reducing a ton of risk to game developers in the online space. So then that brings the value proposition back to AI because then a, a small team can start outpacing content generation compared to what we 
used to be able to do, right? So if my team, for instance, could use our AI systems and the autonomous stuff we've built to like build out an entire game world with a good balanced content, good looking stuff, and it's fun, and then not have to worry about reinventing the server architectural wheels, heck yes, that's interesting to us, right? So I do see that value proposition. Yeah, let, I, I want to respond to a couple of things you said because I think you hit the nail on the head. So the authoring pipeline is key to this. I, it, the thing I just want to really reinforce is the idea of velocity, iteration, and not just decreasing risk, increasing your likelihood of success in actually shipping the game that people want because you've had the opportunity to gather feedback, to try more things, to go through an improvement, a, a very deliberate improvement process. And that's totally related to velocity. And velocity has to be faster in today's day and age because games are going to be getting to market faster with great content and smaller teams. So optimizing your costs and just getting to market. Yeah, and getting you, said it, response. you said it, though. You also mentioned when you were doing your hackathon that you were trying something new. You were trying something that hadn't been tried before. And right now, a lot of games just try to use the same formulas because they know they're successful. That is the, the philosophy of rapid online game generation, right? Mobile game development specifically. That's really what it is. So if we can try new things and, as they say, fail fast or at least simulate it with AIs, at least generate the stuff at such a pace and so cheaply that you can iterate on ideas, well, that's something new. We haven't had that. We've very much had a uh, putting all your cards on the table and going all in situation for a long time. We, we cut our teeth on this with, a, with my first big mobile game, which was called Game of Thrones Ascent based on the television show. Um, this is a game that had about 10 million players and it had 11 million players in it. And our goal for this was for it to be a living world where as episodes of the HBO show came out, mm -hmm. you'd, I th if I recall, they showed the episode on Sunday. We wanted the content to be in the game Monday. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of our process, HBO was nice enough to give us like two or three weeks preview. We'd send a team down to um, New York City. They'd sit in a theater and we'd watch episodes of H of the Game of Thrones show before it came out, kind of funny, like they, they did practically just in time graphics, like you'd see like this low poly dragon or something and it'd be all kind of weird looking, but you'd get the story and we'd know exactly what was in the episodes that the game could ship. So you're probably thinking, Tim, thinking back to your EA days there, like two or three weeks, that's pretty fast to develop like a content update. It is. for an online game. But we had to create a machine to do this regularly, which meant the authoring tools had to be very simple for the game developers and, and often just really the game yeah. designers, the people who work in spreadsheets and specking out content. You'd have to get the art in the game within this short window. So that the end of this story, though, is interesting because a few years into this, HBO started to have all these problems with like leaks and people were t like spreading like what was going to yeah. be in the episodes was not us, by the way. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, they, they just said to everybody who was getting advanced access, nobody is going to have advanced access anymore. Like oh, there's just wow. too many leaks. So they're like, you can watch the episode on Sunday, like everybody else. Oh my God. Like, okay. Um, so we were a little bit clever about it. We were reading the books. We kind of had our, we, we had, of course, read the books many times over. We had 
theories about what was coming up. So we were kind of preparing a little bit of stuff in advance and kind of building an advanced art pipeline, but we still needed to somehow go from that episode and drop content the next day because content would be bought by play. There's a free to play game. People would buy content when it's fresh and cool. And you were the, the cool kid who got to have the, whatever you saw in the episode, like we were having to create that. So the authoring pipeline went from three weeks to like 24 hours or 20 or 48 hours or something like that. Um, but you know, it was, that was sort of where we really learned an appreciation for the importance of velocity, for simplicity, for creating the tooling that, that would allow the developers to do that. And, and we kind of imported that into, into the platform that we ended up building called that became beamable, but it also reminds what you, the story you were telling reminded me of another aspect, which is every game developer out there has some kind of technology that they feel that they treat as very precious. They see it as their proprietary advantage. And many, many game studios have the dream of we're going to license this technology out. Just like what you said, well, we spent all this money on this technology. Let's license it. Um, super hard to do before, you know, without getting into my whole background, like before I did this, I, I had an enterprise technology company building like content management tools for websites. So like I had actually built software products as products, you know, before outside of games. So I knew how hard that was going to be. And we had to take a couple of years really to kind of retool it, unpackage it, repackage it, turn it into a real software product that could just be consumed by developers people always, always underestimate the effort level of what it's going to take to take that little technology from inside their studio and, and make it go wide. Now, that said, we have this dream that will ultimately solve that problem for game studios, because if you have that technology that is server or cloud-based and you want to give it to other game developers or sell it to other game developers, well, what you really need is a framework to wrap around that to do a lot of the complex parts, such as scaling and onboarding and all the stuff that happens in a in a real software product. Well, Beamable could do a lot of that for you. So we're we're hoping to be that marketplace for people who have kind of held on to that dream and the technology just continues to sit there for a few years and and never actually escapes the studio. We, you know. In our team at Bitcraft, we have a couple of investments that we've made that are trying to sell services to games companies. And we've actually found that it's tough. And and it's probably what you said has, has a bit to it where people want to build things themselves and they feel very they feel that these things are very precious. Um, how has your experience been with this, John? This is a market that takes patience. Um and I think we've seen that in any technology that succeeded in this long term. Like, you, you know, Unity, you know, took a while before it was super successful uh, as just one example. Uh, and now they're a world-beating company. But it it takes, it, it, well, let me put it this way. It's a, it's a business of trust. It's not just a business of technology. It's a business of trust. So earning, and I, I put a real emphasis on the word earning, earning the trust of game studios is not an easy thing to accomplish. Once accomplished, that's a massive moat. People don't want to switch to any, like it's already hard to extricate these technologies, but even if they 
did want to do that, they wouldn't because they are hesitant to trust new companies. They don't know if they're going to be around for years. They don't know if the technology has been built in a way that could sustain itself. Um, they've already seen companies like GameSparks get acquired by Amazon. And, you know, that's like one of the biggest companies in the world. And it didn't stop Amazon from shutting it down. And lots of game developers lost trust there. So earning that trust of a game developer is probably the single hardest thing to accomplish in this market. And unless you're willing to invest the time it takes to earn that trust, earn that trust from game developers, you're just not going to succeed in this market because game studios are really talented. And given the choice between something they don't trust that's all, that might sort of nominally solve a problem versus the much more expensive path of they'll just try to figure it out themselves because they at least trust their own engineers. They'll choose the latter every time because, again, games is, as Tim was saying earlier, a lot of game development is about risk mitigation. Yeah. So you don't want to introduce new risks. But once the trust is earned, you can do it. Um, but it, it, it takes a while. And we're still doing that. And, you know, we've we've been very fortunate that some really great studios have now built and shipped on us. There's around 40 games or so that are live on the platform and a couple hundred more in the pipeline, including some of the biggest studios out there at this point. So, you know, although they'll, you know, those also take the longest time to end up shipping. But that's uh, that's the challenge of game technology. And. There's a, there's a million other factors that, that go into it and make it challenging. But I think anybody who's getting into this, in some ways, it's not that different than game development. Game development is a process of patience and iteration. Game technology is too. Um, these are really complicated markets, one in which it might take a while to earn the right to participate in the market, but once you're in with strong studios, then those are annuities, right? Then, then right. you've got an annuity for 10 plus years. Um, and it's an annuity of trust. It's a trust dividend that you're collecting over that period of time. Yeah, I, I just want to I just want to say yes, I agree with this 100 percent because and Nico, you'll know this from your investor hat, you know, putting that on. People ask the first thing they ask when you're making new technology, especially with AI is what's your defensive moat? How are you going to outdo OpenAI? How are you going to outdo these things? And it's funny because if you look at uh, like you know the summary tool that I told you about, or I used it recently to read a mutual non-disclosure agreement and figure out what was good for my like you know what was what was dangerous to me or what was you know needed to be added to it, and it instantly popped it out and said I'm not a lawyer, but you know I, I've got that <laughs> software too. But that software. Anyone could take that right now. Anyone could write that. That's an, a trivial use of a GPT system, right? Game development is not a trivial use of any kind of AI system. It is such already a complicated and difficult landscape. AI requires AI usage in game development requires more than putting a prompt system and a 3D avatar together, right? It requires deep knowledge of games and how they're built and the experience, like John has, for instance, to like translate all of that into a successful set of products. So the defensive mode for game development can be higher 
when you're talking about the game development workflow, the live ops, all that stuff itself, this is my thesis, right? Rather than just the pure asset generation versus just the pure content side. So curious if you guys uh, disagree or what do you guys think about that? Well, I, it, if we're sp- talking about AI specifically, mm-hmm. um, just I, as the defensive I, mode, right? Just like whether you can like really like do something special with AI and games that is harder to do than just like AI and say reading legal contracts. Yeah, well, language models are going to keep leapfrogging each other continuously over the next few years. So will diffusion models and and various asset generation technologies. And whoever wins those are going to command massive capitalizations. So so it makes sense for some number of those to be backed for sure. But I I think it's super difficult to choose who the winners are going to be in advance. Um, For us, we're not going to build the generative technologies, we're going to integrate the generative technologies. Data is really, I think, one of the most defensive moats that you're going to have in this market. If you look at, you know, the various models that are being trained, I think the ones that are most interesting to me, if I look at it through an investor lens, is the ones where they've got access to some kind of proprietary data or data that nobody else has, and that can be used to train really interesting models that then solve interesting problems for people. So at Beamable, you know, our approach is to focus on the kinds of data and systems and things that we've got access to, and then creating the composability, the data interface layers between components so that as game developers want to make use of the data that's inside their game or even from other games, if people choose to opt in to sharing that data, then we want to be able to feed that information into various models that can be used to to build better games or accelerate game development or pull in pieces of code that you can rapidly incorporate into your game. That's our approach to AI as opposed to being like trying to play in the space of LLMs or diffusion models or anything like that. So I think composability data, that's a real strong, and I think there will be some winners on the user interface side as well. Like people people always kind of are like, that's just a user interface. Like, but listen, good user interface is what makes billion dollar companies too. So like, so, but again, maybe a little smaller moat, but the ones who build great user interfaces to capabilities ahead of other people catching on how to do that and capture audiences who trust them to continue doing that are, are going to be some interesting companies as well, I think. Yeah, so I'll give you the practical self-plug, right? So you, you've seen my auto RPG, RPG demo, mm-hmm. right, with the world building. That's not something that yep. you're going to be trying to make. That's something that belongs in your marketplace, right? That's something mm-hmm. that you want to have as, a, as an integrated service that belongs in this overall system. See, that, that makes sense to me. That's the kind of thing yeah, that makes exactly. sense. Yeah, exactly. Just like we have... Yeah, just like we have chat GPT plugins and scenario and yeah. common sense machines. Like, yeah. we're, we're welcoming, you know, every single generative AI company to be part of that. Some of them we'll just build ourselves, Yeah. Cause it makes sense for us to just build a module for chat. And we're not, we're not holding our breath for open AI to build it for us. So like that's one we did in other yeah. cases, people, um, 
people are doing that or ecosystem yeah. funds are supporting the creation of modules that that flow into there but yeah we want to we want to welcome the world into it to to us our approach isn't uh that we have to own all of those components we are we're going to create the marketplace Got and it. the scalable infrastructure and the data interfaces so that all this stuff works together harmoniously and easily okay cool amazing we're coming up on time here. John, where can people learn more about you, find you, follow you, listen to your podcast? Because you're also into that, I heard. Yeah. Um, well, if you're, interest, if you're a game developer who's got anything cloud or server, just go to beamable.com, B-E-A-M-A-B-L-E.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm Jay Radoff. I'm on LinkedIn, John Radoff. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel called Building the Metaverse. So probably just easiest to jump on either LinkedIn, Twitter, connect with me there. And then I've got a, a list of links via Linktree that, that go to all these places, my sub stack with my articles and all my content. Amazing. Love that. Yep. How about you, Tim? Uh, same thing. Uh, I've got a website, blog.cotton.io. So C-O-T-T-E-N, because someone misspelled it like a generation or two ago. And uh Let's see. Um, you can look on YouTube for me. I'm all over the place with podcasts and that sort of thing. And uh, otherwise, come visit FogDAO. Come, come to uh, futureofgaming.wtf and let's let's all hang out together in Discord. Dude, I love that chill. Um, 100% wholeheartedly agree. So, John, Tim, <laughs> thanks for joining. This was uh, really fun, and you know, I, I learned a lot. I don't think about these things often enough. I think about new business models and and how new technologies can do cool stuff. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around what's Everything that John and Tim, you are doing, which essentially means de democratizing game development, what that means for, you know, investors. Mm -hmm. um, if teams of, you know, five, ten people can, can build hyper-successful games, how should we think about these things? Um, mm -hmm. But that's a question for another episode. So really John, interesting Tim, structured funds. That's what I think. But yeah, let's go. <laughs> that's that's the billion that's, dollar revenue per head game. Yeah. That's, yep, that's going to be the next the yes, next bar for you. Yeah. If you're building that, fun. call me, okay? Yeah. All right? <laughs> Put you on the horn. I'll let you know. Yep. Awesome. John, Tim, thank you very much. Listeners, thank you to join us in the Fogdown Discords. Um, and uh, yeah, let's chat um, next week. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Cheers.